3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, November 12th, 2009, Pulmonary System Fundamentals and Ventilation. Okay, let's go ahead and finish up a little bit on uh, blood doping since we had to uh, cut that a little bit short last time. We'll do blood doping, pulmonary fundamentals, and then we'll get on to ventilation. We'll try to get all that done today. So that will leave us with diffusion, maybe altitude if we can get to it on Tuesday. All right. Um, all right, question was asked. <clears throat> well, and let me back up. We, we basically talked about two approaches to this induced erythrocythemia or, or blood doping. So recognize there's two basic approaches. One is you can take blood out, let your body go through the process of restoring your normal levels of blood, and then you add that blood back in, okay? Um, and typically what they do is they take the, the, the unit of blood and they'll, because of your blood sample, you take a sample of blood, about how much of it is plasma fluid and about how much of it is red blood cells, proportionally. About 55% which? Plasma and about 45% cells, okay? So what they will do when they take that, they, you donate that blood, they'll take off most of the plasma so that you've got the concentrated red cells and that's what gets put back in, okay? So that causes this immediate increase in hematocrit and hemoglobin. So that increases your oxygen carrying capacity. Now, during this phase right here, when you have donated blood, those cells in the kidneys see lower levels of oxygen because you, you're not carrying as much oxygen because your blood supply is down. It stimulates this erythropoiesis process. So reduced oxygen sensed by the kidneys, releases that erythropoietin, stimulates the cells in the bone marrow to mature and put more blood cells out into the system. Okay? So that causes an increase in cells to get you back up to normal. But what about the opposite? Now we've got more blood cells than we typically have, so what's probably going to happen? We can see the line going down, so you're actually carrying more oxygen than you usually do. Okay? So the kidneys are, these cells in the kidneys are, are, are getting more oxygen than usual. Therefore, less erythropoietin is released, less stimulation for maturation of new red cells, less red cells are dumped into the blood supply. So over time, what happens is more red blood cells die off and are excreted than are put into the system. So over time, after you've increased this, artificially increased this uh, amount of red cells, over time, you, you know, more die off and are excreted than you replace, so you slowly come back down to normal levels, okay? But what happens is, is this takes several weeks to do. So one of the reasons that this um, ergogenic strategy, which is banned by most of these uh, um, sporting organizations, it's very difficult to catch because you can you can infuse the blood here you can wait several weeks, still have enhanced oxygen carrying capacity, but there's no sign that you've done anything. Okay, so it's real tough to catch. 
So that's what a lot of athletes will do. Um, now, the, what's the second strategy for doing this? One is donating your own blood, storing it, getting back up to normal levels, and replacing it. What's the other strategy? Well, you could use donor blood, but without actually infusing blood, what can you, else can you do? EPO. Okay. Uh, recombinant, you'll, you'll see it abbreviated as R-H-E-P-O, and that stands for recombinant human EPO. Okay. It's, it's a drug that mimics the effects of erythropoietin to stimulate the body to produce more red cells. Okay. Legitimately developed as a drug to help people with anemia to try to get their blood levels back up to normal. Okay. But so that athletes, you know, so people don't have to go through this process of donating blood and so on and so forth. Uh, here's the results of that study we looked at. So here they took EPO over 30 days, over a month, and you can see the increase in hemoglobin and the increase in hematocrit. So you get the blood doping effect without having to infuse any blood. You're basically just hyper-stimulating your own body to produce more red cells. And then when they quit the drug, they quit giving the drug right here. Uh, I'm losing battery power. Notice it stays elevated for uh, a couple of weeks and then slowly starts to come back down. But again, it takes about three or four weeks. Okay. Now, the, the, um, uh, this was done quite a bit by athletes, but now they've gotten more sophisticated at testing for the drug EPO. So what's happening now is athletes are now actually starting to go back and using the blood doping process because they're using their, they're just putting their own blood back in so there's no drug or anything to test for. Okay? Question. So there's, uh, it's a constant game with athletes uh, and the people that work with these athletes uh, uh, of trying to circumvent the rules in the system to try to gain an advantage and, and then the, the sporting establishment trying to figure out how to you know, test and keep these athletes from taking an unfair advantage. So, uh, and as I mentioned up here, uh, most blood or most uh, doping tests over time have been from urine tests, and there's not really much you can tell related to this from urine tests. So, a number of sports organizations have actually started doing blood tests on athletes. They do for the Tour de France, they do for cross-country skiing, um, in some of these events, and they've set limits, either of hemoglobin or of hematocrit limits. So in other words, in the Tour de France, uh, they're subject to a number of random blood tests. They take blood, they spin it down, they look at their hematocrit, and if they're over 50, then they have to wait a certain period of time in which they'll test them again. And if they're still over 50% in their hematocrit, they will not let them compete until their hematocrit's under 50%. Okay. So what the athletes do is they work with physicians and they try to figure out what they can do to keep their hematocrit right at, right up to the, the, the legal limit, okay? Now, we finished up quickly with some of these adverse effects. Uh, these would obviously be the ones related to actually uh, uh, reinfusing blood or in particularly infusing blood from other donors. You know, there's all kinds of... Um, uh, diseases that can be communicated in this process, hepatitis, AIDS. There can be incompatibilities in blood type, you know, if you're not getting the exact blood type match. There can be reactions to the transfusions. Uh, the biggest concern is this issue of viscosity. 
Okay, that you want the blood is very much a balance. It's got to it's got to have enough red blood cells and hemoglobin in it to carry enough oxygen. But you can't have too much in it because then it becomes too viscous and it doesn't flow very easily. So for humans, that upper limit is around 55% or so. So you don't want your hematocrit getting much over 50. That's why they've set the limit at 50. When you get up around 55% or higher, you get red blood cell deformation and you also start to get um, uh, 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 clotting. You form little clots and those float around and they get stuck in bad places in the body and can result in pulmonary embolism, uh, emboli, um, or other problems. Hematocrit is the percentage of your blood sample, the percentage that is cells compared to the, 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 the watery portion of the plasma. So if you take this, um, if, you, if you give a blood sample, you put it in a test tube, you spin it down, all the cells pack into the bottom. So what you do is you look at the total volume of blood and you measure what percentage the, red, the cells make up. And it's normally in the low 40s. Okay? Normally in the low 40s. When, when you add these extra red cells, it makes the hematocrit go up. And you don't want to get above 50%. Okay? Everybody good with any other questions on blood doping? Does the hematocrit increase with exercise? Like training? Uh, that's an excellent question. <clears throat> One of, the, one of the things that stimulates this erythropoiesis process is blood loss. Okay, so if you donate blood. Uh, next week when we get to altitude, we'll talk about when you go to altitude, there's not as much oxygen in your blood. So that stimulates this process. But when you exercise, your muscles are taking more oxygen out of the blood. So on the venous side, you actually have, you're carrying less oxygen. And so exercise is one of the things that stimulates erythropoiesis. Okay? So, yeah, so yes, you increase the number of red cells. But you also increase the plasma volume. Okay? So this is, this is very important. You, with exercise, you increase the number of red blood cells that you have, but you also increase the amount of plasma volume that you have. And... The increase in plasma volume is greater than the increase in red cells. So what happens to hematocrit? It actually goes down. Okay? This is a, a concept or an idea that's a lot of times referred to as um, runner's or athlete's anemia. And it's a false anemia. So it's starting back in the 70s and 80s when a lot of people started doing marathons and long distance running and that kind of thing, getting into the aerobics thing. Um, they would go to their physicians and they would look at their history on their, their blood tests and before their hematocrit was 42 and now their hematocrit's 38 and they would think that they're becoming anemic. But in fact, what's happening is they've got more red cells than they did before, but they've got even more plasma volume so it dilutes the, the uh, uh, blood volume a little bit so your hematocrit actually can go down some. Okay, But the overall benefit is with endurance exercise training is an increase in oxygen carrying capacity because you do have more red cells. Okay? All right, good. Anything else? Good questions.
Alright. So we will leave the pulmonary system, or the cardiovascular system, and we will move on to the pulmonary system. Okay, the, the system obviously works in close conjunction with the cardiovascular system, so you often get the, the term cardiopulmonary system. Um, it's just like the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system does a variety of different things for us, but its main function, its main purpose is gas exchange with the environment. Okay? It's gas exchange. Uh, there are a lot of small organisms that can just diffuse gases in and out uh, through their cell membranes. We're too big and too complex for that, so we have to have a specific system to do that. Uh, we'll, and then there are some other functions that the uh, pulmonary system does for us. Acid-base balance, it actually activates some hormones, it assists a little bit with thermoregulation, it plays a role in immune function, so there's lots of uh, things that the pulmonary system does for us. Main thing, gas exchange. Very quick review of our functional anatomy. Uh, we know we start out here at the nostrils or external nares and the mouth. Okay, we've got this nasal cavity and this oral cavity and they join together at the back of the throat and, and form the pharynx. Okay, pharynx comes down and then uh, bifurcates. We've got the uh, esophagus that goes where? Stomach. And we've got then the larynx larynx and trachea that head down towards the lungs. Okay? This is what, you know, if, if you look at the human body from a, a kind of a functional design perspective, it's actually designed amazingly well. Uh, this is one of those places, though, that we can see that the, des the design is a little puzzling. The fact that we would take in food and fluid through the same tubes that we also take in air is, is a little puzzling and a little troubling. Uh, and in fact, in, in some cases, is dangerous for people. Uh, so this is the point right here at which those, those uh, two functions divide. Uh, and we've got this very important flap of tissue right here, the epiglottis, that when we swallow, closes to close off the larynx to make sure no food or fluid uh, goes down towards the lungs doesn't always work exactly correctly, and that's where you can get choking and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, why we're designed like that, not really sure, but, you know, we gotta got to go with it. Okay, so the larynx comes down, and where it goes into the thorax, we've got the trachea. The trachea is the part where we've got the more uh, rigid cartilaginous rings that helps keep that uh, breathing tube uh, open, and it doesn't collapse with the changing pressures in the thorax. We get down here and the trachea bifurcates into the uh, right and the left bronchi. And then from that point on, these bronchi branch into smaller and smaller and smaller branches down into bronchioles. Okay? Um, there's a trade-off here as well. As we branch into smaller branches and smaller diameter tubes, that increases the resistance to breathing, to airflow, but it also helps increase surface area for gas exchange. So it's kind of a trade-off. And we'll, we'll talk some more about resistance in a little bit. Okay, 
<clears throat> so then we get down to uh, these, uh, the, the final branches of the bronchioles, which we call terminal bronchioles. And these terminal bronchioles end in these uh, uh, sacs where there's a, what's referred to as an alveolar duct. And then branching off of that, and it kind of looks like a, a bunch of grapes still hanging on the vine, you've got these very thin-walled sacs, the alveoli, which is where the gas exchange takes place. Um, so here's our functional anatomy going all the way down. We tend to talk about this in two functional zones or areas. Starting out here at the mouth and the nostrils, all the way down to these terminal bronchioles, this is what's often referred to as the conducting zone. The whole purpose is, of this zone is to move air in and move air back out. Okay? In contrast, these last two areas, the respiratory bronchioles and the alveoli, is where gas exchange takes place. Okay? So all of this up here is just simply uh, the, are the pipes to move air in and move air back out. Where the, where the real function occurs is down here in the respiratory bronchioles to some extent, but mostly in the alveoli. That's where we can diffuse oxygen into the body and carbon dioxide out. Those are the two main gases, obviously, we're going to be interested in. Here's a cast of uh, human lung tissue with all of the alveoli dissected away so that you can see the trachea, uh, the right and the left bronchi, and then the branches going all down to the smaller and smaller bronchioles. Okay? So you can see it's a fairly extensive uh, branched network. <clears throat> um, probably the main point about ventilation or, or about the pulmonary system. So everybody's grabbing for their pens. Probably the main point about the pulmonary system is that for most people, under most conditions, the pulmonary system does not limit our exercise ability. For most people, under most conditions, the pulmonary system is not limiting. Even when you're at maximal exercise and you're really huffing and puffing and you feel like you can't get your, you know, you just can't breathe enough, in fact, you can. You, you are moving enough air in and out and you're diffusing enough oxygen in and out. Okay, and, and the reason I'm making this point is because this part of the functional anatomy uh, illustrates how the lungs, the human lungs, are, are terrific gas exchange organs. Okay? Now, one of the ways that they are terrific gas exchange organs is that when you get down to the alveoli, so this is like an air-filled alveolus right here, the wall of this alveolus is very thin. Okay? It essentially is a uh, one single cell thick wall. Um, and there are a lot of them. Secondly, <clears throat> these alveoli have a very dense capillary network. So they've got a blood supply that is very close to the place that we want to uh, exchange these gases. Okay? Very thin walls very dense blood supply, uh, and our lungs have their own, uh, uh, obviously we've got a pulmonary artery here that's coming from the right ventricle in, then that will break down to these pulmonary capillaries, 
and then they will collect into these pulmonary veins and go back to the left atrium. Okay. Um, our, our lung tissue also has lymphatic vessels so that we can collect excess fluid and other things and kind of, kind of move them out of the lungs. Uh, here's, a, here's a pulmonary arteriole over here. Here's some pulmonary venules over here. And so all of this mesh network stuff in here are pulmonary capillaries. Okay, so this is a really nice micrograph showing how dense the capillary network is that sits on, on these, this lung tissue on these alveoli. Okay, so we've got our alveolus over here, and its wall is one cell thick. And then over here, we've got our pulmonary capillary. Its wall is one cell thick. It's a capillary. Do it till I die. Well, let, <laughs> you'll be the first one. <laughs> so, so you can override it voluntarily to some extent. But, it, but, but the short story is, the longer you hold your breath, you're, you're not getting rid of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide starts to build up in the blood. There are sensors to the carbon dioxide in uh, some of your arteries and in your brain. And once carbon dioxide gets to a certain level, it will cause you to uh, involuntarily breathe. You know, e even though you're trying not to, you're trying to hold your breath, you know, it won't allow you to... You can, you can voluntarily override it only to a certain point, and then the automatic nature kicks in. Now, sleep apnea, I, I don't know enough about that, but there's obviously something that has circumvented that, that is allowing the person to not breathe for some unusual period of time. I'm not sure what the, what the trigger to that is. So, okay. All right, so that's fundamentals. How are we doing here? We're doing all right. All right, ventilation. Yeah, let me just jump all over the over those first couple of slides and get to this one. And I'll, I'll come back and hit some of those concepts, but let's just jump to this part. When, when we're looking at the performance of the heart, and we're looking at cardiac output, cardiac output is equal to the product of what two things? Heart rate and stroke volume. This is an equation for the pulmonary system that is analogous to that same equation. Except this time we're talking about minute ventilation. Okay, how much you're breathing every minute is a product of respiratory rate, how often you breathe, analogous to heart rate, and tidal volume, which is the size of each breath. Okay? Just like we did with cardiac output, minute ventilation is expressed in liters per minute. How many liters of air are you breathing? Now, because we've got a two-way system, in and out, we're only talking about the volume going in one of those directions. Okay, V, our physiology shorthand for V is for what? Volume. The... E stands for expired, and the dot over the V stands for rate. OK? 
Okay, so that's a volume per unit time, and we're in this case we're looking at it just on the expired side. You could just as easily hook up a, a device and measure the air going in, in which case this would be VI, inspired. Okay, but in exercise physiology, you all have seen the metabolic cart in the lab. We know that the hose is set up so that you breathe in room air and you breathe out through the tube that goes to the machine. And the very first thing where it plugs in there is what's called a pneumatac, and it helps us measure volume. And it's done on the expired side. So in exercise physiology, we usually talk about VE, which, stand, which is minute ventilation. So it's how many liters of air you're breathing in, or in this case, breathing out, how many liters of air every 60 seconds. Okay? Um, tidal volume, some, uh, that's easy. How many breaths in a 60-second period of time? And then tidal volume is the size of each breath. And just like we did with stroke volume, we tend to look at this in milliliters per breath, but then when we do the whole equation, we've got to convert this to liters. Okay. Here's what's pretty typical at rest. A, a typical person breathes about 12 to 15 times a minute at rest. And a typical size of a breath at rest is about 500 milliliters. Okay, Toby, what size is that? Uh, how, many, how many mils, how many milliliters is that? It's 5 liters. 0.5 liters, so that's, that's a ha half of a liter, so that's 500 milliliters. Hold that up. Okay, 500 milliliters right there. That's about the size of an average breath at rest. That's the volume. Okay? Um, so, 500 milliliters or 0.5 liters times 15 breaths per minute is about 7.5 liters a minute. A typical person at rest is going to breathe about 7.5 liters a minute to make sure that you're moving enough air in to get oxygen in and enough air out to get rid of carbon dioxide. Okay. Now one of the things that hopefully you saw from the graph in your lab, this is very much an average and what can influence lung size and then therefore minute ventilation at rest? Body size. Hopefully with the graph that you had from your lab that you would see typically as people were taller their vital capacity was bigger. There's some variation around that, but uh, usually that's a pretty good relationship. Okay? It won't be exact. It won't be every single person, but it, that's, that's the typical pattern. Okay? All right. Well, so we did this with the cardiovascular system. We'll do it with the pulmonary system. You know, if you, if you typically breathe in about 15 times a minute and there's 60 minutes in an hour and you look at 24 hours a day, if you do nothing but lay on the couch, and so you're resting for a 24-hour period, you're still breathing in excess of 20,000 times a day. Okay? And if you're moving about a half a liter each, each, with each breath, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 18 or 10, 10 to 11,000 liters of air you're, you're moving on a daily basis. And that's if you do nothing but lay on the couch. Okay. <clears throat> Now, ventilation response, first of all, to steady state exercise. Okay, we start exercise, you run at a steady pace for a few minutes, and then you stop. 
Obviously, we're going to see our ventilation increase. So our total minute ventilation is going to go up. It will go up to a level, you know, it, it'll plateau at a level that's bringing in enough air for oxygen diffusion in to maintain the body's oxygen levels and to blow off enough carbon dioxide to keep CO2 from getting too high in the body. Okay? And then obviously if you stop exercising here, ventilation slowly returns back down to resting levels. Um, what these two illustrate is that we increase our breathing by increasing both how many breaths we take a minute, so we breathe faster, and we also increase our tidal volume or the size of breath we take. Okay? And you don't have to think about it. Your, your, your body does this just fine. And it's just based on, uh, essentially based on, primarily on uh, gas concentrations in your blood. Okay, and that's more of the same, so don't worry about that. Okay, let's look at, um, so that's steady state. Okay, steady state, ventilation's going to go up, plateau at whatever, the, whatever meets the demand for that level of exercise, and then when the exercise is over, we'll go down again. Respiratory rate increases and then plateaus, tidal volume increases and plateaus, and then goes back down to normal when you stop the exercise. Let's talk about um, let's talk about uh, incremental exercise up to maximum, max test. Alright, this is analogous to the three graphs that we looked at for cardiac output, heart rate, and stroke volume. But in this case we've got Minute ventilation, VE, we've got respiratory rate, and we've got tidal volume. Okay, so this is exercise from rest up to max. So at rest, <clears throat> we're starting off down here at about 7.5 liters per minute. We start exercising, our ventilation is going to go up. As exercise intensity increases, our ventilation is going to increase. It will increase in a pretty straight line, linear fashion up to a point. And after this point, it will go up in a more abrupt fashion like this. Okay. So see, if we'd have kept going in a straight line, it would have gone like this, but instead it goes up this way. So there is some sort of threshold that's often referred to as the ventilation threshold Ventilation goes up in a pretty linear fashion, and then you get to a point where if you keep going up in intensity, it goes up more abruptly. Okay? Uh, any clue about how... Uh, so then when you get up to some VE max. Any clue, any idea how high your ventilation will go? 
Well, first of all, what, is it, what would it depend on? Size. Okay. It's mostly dependent upon size. It can be dependent on some degree to aerobic training level because you can train your respiratory muscles to move more air. Okay, But the, the biggest factor is size. Bigger people have bigger lungs, they move more air. Okay, But any, any idea what this might go up to? We started at 7.5, 20, 30, 1,000? Any ballpark? Okay. You've got enormous ventilatory capacity. An average sized person can get their VE max up to about 100 liters a minute. The, the, the highest I've ever seen in a human is uh, we had an opportunity to test um, these, uh, and I, I think, I can't remember if I showed you a, the video clip or not. We, we had an opportunity to test some of the uh, Olympic rowers uh, just prior to the Sydney Olympics. So this would have been in, 19, in 99. Is that right? Yeah. Um, we tested a guy who was one of the rowers, um, and he was about 6'6 and weighed about 225 pounds. This guy was like a linebacker in a boat. He was huge. So first of all, he's big, so he's got big lungs. Plus, he's uh, an, an Olympic-caliber athlete, and this guy got to almost 250 liters per minute uh, of air that he could move. So we have, a, most of us, unless you have some kind of underlying uh, path, pathology, lung disease, most of us have an amazing capacity to move air, okay? Move lots of air. Most people, though, in that range, 100 to 150, Okay. All right, respiratory rate. Actually, yeah, let's do respiratory rate. Okay. We're going to start off most people around 12 or 15 times per minute at rest. As we increase exercise intensity, what's going to happen to the number of times we breathe per minute? It's going to increase. Okay. There's a little bit different pattern here, though. It starts off by increasing at a fairly low level, and as you get towards max exercise, it starts going at a higher and higher and higher level like this. Okay? So it, when, when you start off in exercise intensity, you do increase your breathing rate, but not as much early on, but then when you get near maximum, you basically are breathing almost as fast as you can, as many breaths per minute as you can, okay? So small increase at the beginning, big increase uh, down here. So what about uh, respiratory rate max? Any idea how many times maximum you'll breathe a minute? What's that? That's, that's about right. For, for most... Humans, uh, adult, adult humans, will get up in the high 40s, maybe in the 50s, okay? Kids are a little less efficient, and they're, they're like little rabbits, you know? they got smaller lungs, uh, so they'll breathe faster. Kids can get up in the 70s or whatever, but, but it's typically somewhere maybe around the 50s or so, maybe 60s, okay, for respiratory rate.
Okay, tidal volume. We're going to start off down here with about a half a liter. When we start exercising and exercise intensity starts going up, we're going to start taking bigger breaths. Okay? So, breath size starts to go up, tidal volume starts to go up. It will go up to a point, and after that point, tidal volume will start to level off. Okay? Make sure I, make sure I get this pretty accurate, so I don't want it to look like it's going down. What was the question? Yeah, rest to max, same thing. So this is all in the same exercise test, which I believe is actually what you're doing in lab tomorrow, that ventilation threshold. Okay, so somebody will do a max test. You'll be able to look at VE at rest and VE all the way up to max. You'll be able to look at respiratory rate at rest all the way up to max. You'll be able to look at tidal volume. Now, you did the lung volumes lab last week, right? What is the biggest breath you can take? Vital capacity. How did you do that test? You took in the biggest breath you could, right? So you filled your lungs up as, as close as you can possibly get to total lung volume, and then what would you do? You blew out as much air as you could and squeezed out every last little bit, so you've tried to empty your lungs down to the maximum that you can. Can you completely empty your lungs? What's left? Residual volume is left. You always have some residual volume. Okay, so you can't blow out voluntarily, you can't blow out all the air in your lungs. There's residual volume left. So, when you have gone from total lung capacity and you blow all the way down to vital or down to residual volume, that's theoretically the biggest breath you can take, right? And that's your vital capacity. So, what were some of the numbers that you all got for vital capacities for VC? You remember what the size of vital capacity was? Yeah, it's three something, three liters something. Anybody getting the fours? Somebody getting the fives. Four? Is somebody getting the fives? Five liters? Okay. So that's probably about right. It's probably in the neighborhood of, you know, three to four to if somebody's pretty big, you know, maybe five liters. Okay. Are you stretching or? Okay. Um, now, here's what's interesting. Vital capacity. Um, or a, a tidal volume max, what happens is with most people is that only this, and, and, and for people who have done a max test, well, what, what does your ventilation feel like when you're in that last stage right before you tap out on the max test? So you're breathing easy? No. You're... you're you're working hard, moving a lot of air, and, and when you really get towards maximum, really feel like you're sort of gasping for air, right? Okay. In fact, what happens is most people, the maximum tidal volume, the maximum breath size they get to during a max test is only about 75% of their vital capacity. Okay, so even at that maximum exercise, when you feel like you're working like crazy, you can't get enough air, you're actually not even using the maximum ability of your lungs. Okay, so even at maximum exercise, 
you're not taking as big a breath as you can. Well, at least as far as the lungs go, that's one of the pieces of evidence that tells us that the lungs are probably not the limiting factor. Okay? Um, uh, part of this is just breathing efficiency. Okay? When you're running on the treadmill, you want most of your energy directed toward your, toward your legs to keep your legs going so you don't fall off the back of the treadmill. Okay? So you don't want to spend, you've got to spend some energy breathing, but you want to spend as little as possible. So lungs have elastic tissue. The more you inflate the lungs, the more resistance there is to inflating them even further. Okay? So it's, it's not very energy efficient for us to take really, really big breaths. So what the body does is it finds a balance between breath size and frequency. Okay? And in order to be more efficient, it limits the size of the breath in favor of increasing breathing frequency because this starts to get too hard when the breaths get too big. Okay? Does that make sense? I mean, because theoretically, what's our, our, resting, our resting minute ventilation is uh, seven and a half. Okay? So say your vital capacity is, let's just say it's four liters. You could meet your resting minute ventilation needs taking two breaths a minute. Right? Because if, if the biggest breath you could take is four liters a minute, or four liters, and you took two of those breaths every minute, you're getting eight liters. Right? So why don't we do that? It's a pain in the ass, exactly. It's, it, well, not exactly. It, uh, it, it's too energy inefficient. Okay? How was doing that, was, was that vital capacity test, was, was that uh, easy to do? Was it without effort? No, it requires effort, right? Because you have to take in as much air as you can, and you have to blow it out and squeeze out as much air as possible. It's not very energy efficient. So instead, well, uh, we could... We could do this by taking um, breaths that were 100 milliliters and do it 75 times a minute. Okay. Well, why is that not very efficient? Because when I take a 100 milliliter breath, how much of that actually gets down into my lungs? I think I'm going to clip that section of this podcast. That's, that sounds a little weird. Um, yeah, I, wouldn't I don't want to put that on the internet. Um, so, so why is that not very efficient? Not very much of the air of that 100 mils that you breathe in is actually getting down to the alveoli, so you don't get good gas exchange. So the body finds a really nice balance between uh, breath, n number of breaths and breath size. Okay? Make sense? I, I would make sure you're very familiar. Very familiar. With ventilation responses to um, uh, steady state exercise and incremental exercise from rest up to maximum. Okay? Let's see.
All right, so we'll show you some. Uh, all right, what I've driven, uh, drawn on the board is is real uh, uh, simple. Uh, this is these are the, some data from a, uh, a subject uh, that we tested in the lab, and so here's minute ventilation. So we've got we've got exercise intensity down here. So this is oxygen consumption going from about 7.5 up to about 37.5. Um, so here's what happens with minute ventilation. Okay, uh, we we've. These are data from uh, what I used also in the cardiovascular section. And so this person, yeah, come back. Complete, yes. Okay, so this person got a VO2 max of about 35 mLs per kg per minute. You know, pretty, not, not real great. Um, minute ventilation response during the first part of the exercise, pretty linear, pretty straight line. Yeah, and if it had stayed linear, it would have just gone right up here like this, but instead it jumped upward. So this is a point that we would call this ventilation threshold, okay? Uh, here's this person's respiratory rate during this test. And as you can see, it did go up a little bit early on, but the biggest increases in rate was at or near maximum exercise, okay? So small increases early on and then big increases in rates later on. This person got to about 45, okay? Then we go to tidal volume and you can see tidal volume goes up and then levels off, okay? And so tidal volume leveled off for this person at around uh, three, 2.75 or so to 3 liters per breath. I don't know what this person's vital capacity is, but that's one of the things you'll, you'll uh, be able to do as part of your lab tomorrow. Okay? So more of an increase early on in exercise, but late at high intensities of exercise, vital capacity kind of levels off. Okay? All right. Um, Let's see. Okay. Um, all right, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, the, the pulmonary system is, is two-way. Okay, air goes in, goes back out through the same pipes. The cardiovascular system is moves fluid by positive pressure. Okay? Heart fills with blood, heart contracts, squeezes on the blood in the heart, generates high pressure to push blood through the system. Positive pressure. The pulmonary system uh, is able to accomplish ventilation by negative pressure. Okay? It creates an area of negative pressure that then helps us pull air in from the outside to try to balance the pressure differential. Um, there are some things that provide resistance to breathing. Uh, part of it is, is this um, issue that's called compliance of the lungs, which is how easy is it for the lungs to expand, okay? And the, the lungs have some extensibility. You can stretch lung tissue, 
but they also have some elasticity, and if you stretch the lungs and you remove the force that's stretching it, it wants to return back to its normal position, okay? It's that elasticity that makes the really, really big breaths uh, more difficult to do. We also have some tissue resistance, okay? You've got a rib cage and you've got muscles that, that sit on the lungs and you've got to move that stuff. And if you want to expand the lungs, you've got to be able to move that tissue out of the way. Okay, below the diaphragm, you've got the abdominal contents, and in order to pull the diaphragm down, you've got to move those abdominal contents out of the way. So there are some things that provide resistance to us breathing. By far, for, for most, or, well, I shouldn't say for most people, the, one of the things that can change the most dramatically is what's called airway resistance, and that's based on the diameter or the radius of the tubes that you breathe through. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. Okay, I mentioned this uh, a, a while back when we were talking about venous return. Okay, here's, here's our lungs, except here's our lungs sitting right here in the thorax. Here's the diaphragm, this lar large dome sheet of muscle. Uh, when you inspire, a nervous signal, an action potential, is sent to the diaphragm telling it to contract. When the diaphragm contracts, it pulls downward like this. Okay, So it moves from this position, it pulls downward. When it pulls downward, it makes the, in, the, the thoracic space larger. Okay, So you've got this airtight cavity, and if you make that airtight cavity larger in volume, what happens to the pressure inside? It goes down. If we were to squeeze it smaller, the pressure goes up. If we expand it, the pressure goes down. Okay? So that creates a negative pressure in here that the way we balance that pressure is that we open our mouth uh, and the epiglottis is open and air is pulled into the lungs by creating negative pressure in the thorax. Okay. You use some other muscles as well, and I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, your diaphragm is your primary inspiratory muscle. Other muscles that we use for inspiration are ones that can lift the, the ribs. Okay, so our sternocleidomastoids in the neck, our scalenes, and our intercostals, okay, are, are accessory muscles of inspiration. They can help because the ribs, you know, they sit like this and they swing like bucket handles. So if you've got muscles that can pull up on the ribs, they can pull the ribs up and out this way and help increase thoracic space, okay? All right. On Tuesday, we'll start with the quiz. And uh, it'll basically be on today's lecture. And then we'll um, uh, finish this up.